Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor at EAA for print and digital content and publications. And normally on my left, it's Chris Henry, but we moved things around a little bit. So now on my left, it's Tom Sharpentier, government relations director. And speaking of Chris Henry, uh, we're sorry to say that uh, that he's taken the day off today. And uh, and we ask that you all join us in a, uh, in a brief uh, moment of silence for Chris's car, which somehow managed to be both flooded and on fire in uh, storms that happened uh, just last night here in Oshkosh as we were recording this. So uh, farewell to Chris's charger and uh, and long live the next one. So Tom, we, uh, we're lucky to be joined remotely by, uh, by a guest, um, someone who uh, I, I'm uh, privileged to have met a couple of years ago and, and now uh, proud to call a friend. Um, his name is Bill Barry, and Bill is the chief historian at NASA, which is one of the coolest job titles I think I've ever come across. So, Bill, welcome. Uh, thanks, Al. Nice to meet you again. Exactly. And you too, Tom. Good to meet you, Bill. It's great to have you here. Now, Bill, you and I first met in person when you came to Oshkosh, and uh, we we introduced uh, the movie Hidden Figures together, and you gave us some terrific insight on that. And then uh, you were kind enough to... Uh, uh, to say that, uh, that that you're a listener of the Green Dot, and uh, um, I remember you wearing an "I Love the Green Dot" T-shirt and a big foam finger and all kinds of things. That's that's how I see it. I'm wearing my Green Dot tie right now. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, Bill, once again, uh, once again, welcome. And let's let's start off with uh, a little bit of uh, your background. Um, how did you first uh, How did you first get involved in NASA? And I understand uh, prior to that, you have an Air Force background. Yeah, well, I, I I became a space geek at a very young age, probably four or five, as my parents tell me. Um, but uh, And I always wanted to work for NASA, but I took a detour into the Air Force for uh, 22 years. I went to the Air Force Academy and then flew KC-135s for a few years, taught at the Air Force Academy, and did a couple of other jobs in the Air Force. And then uh, when I retired in 2001, uh, much to my surprise and delight, I landed a job working at NASA. And... Um, in our international office first, and then I switched over to the historian job uh, in 2010. So, well, when you say space geek, I can tell you for sure you're you're among friends here, uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, do you have a did you have a background in in history? Did you was was that part of your schooling, or did is that something that was more organic and and uh, self self learned over the years? Um, well, <clears throat> I absorbed a lot of. Um, stuff about the space program because I was, I was one of those annoying kids who wrote to NASA about every month, you know, when I was a kid asking for more information about the space program. And, and, and back in those days when we had a much larger public affairs budget, uh, I would get a package of stuff just about every month. It was great. Oh, that's fantastic. So that, uh, excuse, I don't mean to interrupt, but you know, I, I, I think I have brought this up once before on the show, but when I was a kid, I had a book and I, I keep meaning to look it up, figure out what the name of it was. And you might've even come across it. And it was, at least part of it was devoted to like a section of, of letters that NASA has received over the years. And one mm. of them was from a kid that said, dear NASA, I'm interested in the space program. Please send it to me. And to this day, I still just laugh when I think about that. And I picture, you know, maybe that might be a signed Bill Barry. That's hard to say. <laughs> it might have been. I don't know. Um, we still get letters like that from kids. And we're, we're delighted to answer. Fortunately, nowadays, you know, we don't have to send them things through 
mail necessarily. We can point them to the tons of stuff we have on our website. So sure. um, that's a great place and a great resource. So you mentioned you started at NASA in the international office. What kind of a role was that? Well, um, I'll backtrack a little bit on, on how I wound up here in the first place, and that, that'll explain a little bit about that. Um, so when the Air Force, the Air Force very nicely, thanks to you and your tax dollars and everybody else who's you know, a taxpayer for, for doing this, but the Air Force uh, sent me off to grad school twice. I guess it didn't take the first time. Um, and so when I was, went off the, the second time to get my Ph.D., you know, to go, go back and teach the academy, um, I, I was supposed to do a, a dissertation on Soviet defense policy, but between the time I was accepted into grad school and the time I actually showed up, there was a little bit of a delay there. The Soviet Union disappeared. And so, and so, so I, I got to grad school in the early 90s and, uh, you know, for my PhD. And, and um, I had to figure out what I was going to write about. And um, uh, at that time, the lid had come off on all the information about the early Soviet space program. And some really interesting things being said about, you know, who was running it and what they were doing. And a lot of it conflicted. And uh, fortunately for me, my uh, advisor on my dissertation um, agreed that, that that was a much more interesting topic than the other two not so good ideas I came up with um, to, to do. So so I did my dissertation basically on a political history of the early Soviet space program. So um, a couple of years later, I retired from the Air Force and um, um, I'm looking for a job. And the guy at the time who was the chief historian of NASA at, NASA at the time, a guy named Roger Lanius, and that's still a good friend of mine, um, he, um, I got this email from him saying, you know, Bill, why don't you apply for a job at NASA? You know, you love NASA. You know a lot about space stuff. You, you know, why, why don't you apply for a job here? And I said, Roger, you know, what are the odds that NASA needs somebody with my kind of really quirky skill set of, you know, you know, Soviet space history stuff? And he goes, well, you never know. And as usual, Roger was right. Um, I, I talked to a couple of people that he pointed me to, and the next thing I know, I had a job offer to work in the international office largely to work on um, our relations with the Russians on the International Space Station. Um, so I was basically sort of one of the, one of the Russia desk folks uh, here at NASA headquarters. Um, and, you know, so I, I wrote a lot of background papers on, you know, what, what, what are the Russians doing now and why are they doing it? And, and I prepared a lot of, you know, trip books for a NASA administrator. Every travels overseas has a trip book to prepare them for things. So I wrote, you know, the background papers for them on, you know, this is where you're going, what you're doing, this is how we won't lose your luggage, uh, all those important things like that. Um, so I did that for um, about six years. Um, and and then um, NASA, in its infinite wisdom, said, we need to use you, your skill set overseas someplace. And we have a couple of places where we have NASA folks working at embassies around around the country, around the world. And, um, and so, of course, being a Russia expert, they sent me to France. <laughs> of course. <laughs> So, Welcome so, to government wanna, work. Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised. Um, anyway, so I get to spend three great years in Paris at the U.S. Embassy in Paris as the NASA European representative, which is another great NASA job. Um, and when I rotated back from that one in 2010, um, the uh, historian job was open. I had been lusting after it for a number of years, and uh, I applied, and, and uh, lo and behold, that's that's where I wound up. That's terrific. So... Um, Wow, that's a, that's a a bit of a circuitous route, but uh, you know, via via the international <laughs> office, via Paris. Did you ever actually ever make it over to Kazakhstan at any point? Oh yeah, I, I've 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 actually seen more Russian space launches than I've seen American ones. <laughs> Whenever a, a senior NASA official would go over to Russia, we have people we have people in Moscow, and some folks working at the embassy, and you know, the folks working at Mission Control and places there. But 
but uh, they'd usually send along someone from headquarters to make sure the bags didn't get lost or something important like that. Uh, and I was usually the guy who did did that. Um, and so, so I, I've been down to Kazakhstan for you know, I lost count of how many launches now. Wow. Um, but uh, I, only, I only actually saw two space shuttle launches in, in my NASA career, which is um, great that I got to see two, but uh, too bad I didn't see more, I guess. Right. Too bad that uh, that they weren't happening every week or every, every, <laughs> every two weeks, as, you know, I think at one point was, was some of the hope for the for the, the program, as auspicious as it was. Yeah, the early, early plans, yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Bill. I've always been curious about it. So, you know, obviously... Our space program from uh, the late 50s and through the 60s and the peak of the Cold War, uh, there was this defining undercurrent of, of competition with the Soviet Union. And then suddenly, as you say, you're, you know, you're going to work on this uh, work on this paper and then suddenly the, the country no longer exists and things change so much. And we, we, we start a, a much greater spirit of cooperation with, uh, with now the Russians. Uh, and granted, we've got that uh, little small roots to that with uh, Apollo Soyuz uh, in the mid seventies. But what was, what was the mood like the, the first time we really reached out to and, and talked to the Russians about, about cooperating versus competing? Well, interestingly enough, it wasn't even as late as 1975. Actually, the, the first uh, U.S.-Soviet agreement on space cooperation actually was signed in 1962. 62? 1962, Seriously? yeah. Yeah, now it's, there's a really interesting backstory on that one because um, uh, Hugh Dryden, who was the deputy administrator of NASA, and he'd been right. running the NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the organization that most of NASA was built on, um, so Dr. Dryden um, had a lot of international uh, science contacts. You know, that was kind of a thing back in the you know, 50s and stuff. A lot of, there were a lot of international scientific you know, groups that got together. And he had a lot of contacts. And um, the, um, you know, even the Eisenhower administration and then early in the Kennedy administration, um, both of them were trying to find out more about what the Russians were doing in space and, and try and get them to talk about things. And, and you know, there were also things that, that made sense to cooperate on. Um, and so Dryden was deputized to, to go talk to um, um, his uh, theoretically Soviet counterpart. It was actually not the way they ran their program. It was very um, differently organized than the way we did. Um, but they, they basically put up somebody who said he was in the Academy of Sciences, which really wasn't the case. But that's another long story. But anyway, but Dryden met with his, um, with his counterpart there, and they uh, came to an agreement after several sessions and they agreed to exchange data on, um, on communication satellites a little bit about, you know, that we were, we were going to launch the Echo satellite. And we were asking them to help, you know, test the Echo satellite um, and uh, some you know, biological information about, you know, things we found out about flying, you know, people and, and animals in space. And, um, you know, a couple other sort of small low level things. And, and the Soviets signed the agreement. They, you know, we lived up to our part of that agreement. They lived up to some of the things in that agreement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and not not others. Um, I, I think largely because they may not have been capable of doing some of the things that they agreed to do. Um, and uh, and so you know there there have been basically low level agreements since then. Um, and there was some cooperation in the 60s in various fields. And then in, of course in the early 70s, President Nixon signed the agreement to uh, to do the Apollo Soyuz test mission. And that you know that was a like a big step increase in in the level of cooperation and the kinds of things that we were doing. But uh, but yeah, the the you know, space is really very much a 
usefully done internationally, um, and um, and the cooperation goes way way back. So you mentioned um, the NACA. Um, could you could you maybe go a little bit into the the formation of NASA in 1958 and kind of uh, uh, its predecessor predecessor slash predecessors um, and, and uh, kind of what what contributed to that? Yeah, sure, Tom. Um, the um, NACA, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, was uh, created in 1915, and um, uh, it was strangely enough created because the United States was behind in aeronautics. Right? <laughs> a recurring theme, uh, huh? Yeah, 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 it may seem that way, right? Um, but, you know, of course, the Wright brothers invent the plane, you know, the, the practical airplane, and when they demonstrated it in Europe, the Europeans all said, hey, this is great. We figured out what they've, they've done and, and how they did it. Uh, and the copyright protections didn't help at all, so they, they immediately took off and did all kinds of interesting things. There's a lot of uh, entrepreneurial money in France that encouraged people to compete um, and uh, and have their races and contests and things like that. So so they got they got actually pretty far ahead of us. Also, the World War One was on the doorstep for them, and they were more motivated to to do things. So by the time World War One starts, the United States realizes it's behind, and and the NACA is set up. Uh, initially, it is just a committee. It's twelve guys that are unpaid that give advice, but pretty quickly they started building a research establishment of their own. Um, and the NACA really put itself on the map in the in the 1920s um, by um, you know building some really cutting edge um, wind tunnels at first and then other research facilities. Um, so you know by the time of World War II, the the NACA is a relatively quiet organization, but one that made a huge impact. Every single airplane uh, that flew in World War II um, went through the wind tunnels at Langley Research Center down in Hampton, Virginia, uh, for what was called drag cleanup. Uh, and they they actually improved the you know the range and the speed of um, a lot of uh, the airplanes that went through there by you know three to ten percent, uh, and that's a pretty good margin. Uh, so that that helped a lot. Anyway, so the NACA was was kind of the place to go uh, for that sort of stuff. And the guy who t- takes over the NACA after World War II is Hugh Dryden. I mentioned him earlier. Um, uh, a really amazing guy. Uh, but he had he had studied. Um, the, the access efforts in uh, aeronautics research and space research and rocket research af- after the war and had been involved in the, the U.S. government study of, of you know, what we ought to do in the future. And then he gets put, put in charge of the NACA, and he basically takes the NACA and applies what he learned from that study to you know what should the NACA be studying. And it was high-speed flight and rocketry research. So by the mid-'50s, the NACA is not just an aeronautics research agency. It's basically a proto-space agency to start with. So in, in 1957, the Soviets uh, launched Sputnik and then Sputnik 2, and and there's a rush to get something done. And in early 1958, as the U.S. government is deciding what they're going to do, they decide that they will build our new civil space agency on the basis of the NACA, and then they add some other things like um, the parts of the Naval Research Laboratory that had been, been building the Vanguard satellite. Uh, that got bolted on. Uh, parts of the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, Warner Von Braun and his team there in Huntsville, uh, they get added in to build big rockets for us. Uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory out in California, they were actually part of the Army at the time, and they get added to NASA as well. Uh, so you, you had a lot of different organizations kind of being pulled together to, to make uh, to make NASA in, in um, 1958. And in fact, we're celebrating our 60th birthday here on October 1st, because NASA opened its doors as NASA on October 1st, 1958. 
So one kind of high-profile aspect of the NACA days, uh, and I think it's a topic that both Hal and I are really interested in, is is kind of the glory days of the X planes, uh, you know, in the in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. Um, I know that, uh, and this is kind of touched on in the uh, in in the movie The Right Stuff and a few other things like that. Um, there were military flight test programs like the X one and the X two, but then there was also the NACA sponsoring, uh, for example, the D five five eight. Uh, and some other high-speed research. How did those two um, programs, or how did all of those programs, I guess, interplay uh, and um, either complement each other or sometimes maybe even be in competition with each other? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question um, because, uh, in fact, it, as you may guess from the movie, The Right Stuff, which is a great movie, not so great history, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, but uh, um, it does give you the, the feel for what the environment was like. And one of the things about the environment out there at, uh, at New York Flight Test Center, uh, as it was known initially, uh, was this sort of tension between you had the, the you know, Army Air Corps and then the Air Force um, um, that really has charge the thing. But there are also some Navy folks out there who are doing some Navy research, so you had competition with them. And then you had the, uh, the engineers from the NACA who were out there, and in fact, the the X1, um, when they were first, when the X1 was first delivered to uh, Edwards, there were two of them. One of them was uh, the one that Chuck Yeager broke the uh, speed, uh, you know, sonic barrier with uh, Glamorous Glennis. But there was a, a basically a duplicate one with a different wing on it. Uh, that was the NACA's research one. Um, and and the, so the X1 program was actually a joint uh, Air Force NACA program. You hear much more about the Air Force part of it, but the the NACA engineers were, were busy doing things. And and they, the Air Force approach, uh, I can say this because I'm the uh, you know, Air Force guy myself, um, the Air Force approach was largely, you know, we're here to, you know, push the boundaries and set new records and, and you know, do some interesting stuff. Um, the NACA guys were like, we want to understand why this stuff is happening. And so they took a very much more sort of systematic engineering approach. And those two approaches didn't really mesh together really well. Um, in, in many ways. So there was, there was friction there that, that happened. And um, they used this, you know, Edwards was a small enough location and there were a few enough people there. They found ways to get along with each other and work things out. But there was always a tension between the, the engineers and, and the NACA folks. And, and you'd hear people like, you know, Chuck Yeager, for example, you know, General Yeager, great guy, a uh, heck of a pilot. Um, and, uh, but he'd, he'd complain about the, you know, these NACA guys who, you know, really wouldn't be very good test pilots because they didn't understand about, you know, how to, you know, kick the tires and light the fires. Um, and, the NACA, and the NACA guys, we go, we go, you know, that Jaeger guy, he's, you know, he may be a great pilot, but he doesn't understand how to fly a flight test profile and, you know, meet the marks on these specific things, these specific kinds of places, so we can get the test that we want. Um, so there's a, there's a culture clash there. Um, but uh, but the, that whole... That whole thing was an amazing collaborative effort. Something not so collaborative, but uh, but a collaborative effort on the part of um, you know the, the Air Force and, and the NACA and, and the Navy as well. Um, the X-15 program, for example, which is you know one of the, the most productive uh, aeronautics research programs ever, you know, particularly for an X-plane. Um, that program was actually um, um, proposed by the NACA um, and. Dr. Dryden, being the guy that he was, an incredible character that he was, he actually convinced the Navy and the Air Force to pay for the X-15 and let the NACA run the test program. Uh, how, how he did that, I don't know, um, but he did, and uh, it was a very successful program. Yeah, I, th- I think um, 
you know, and particularly later on, uh, the NACA or NACA, and then later NASA uh, would oftentimes take on projects that the uh, that kind of petered out in the defense establishment. Uh, I think that probably the most famous of those would be the XB seventy, uh, and just um, you know the kind of just amazing flying and and, uh, and really cool projects that NASA was able to support as a civilian program uh, after they were cast off by the by the military it was pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, the XB-70 is a great, great example. Um, we also were, you know, NASA was involved in uh, some use of the SR-71 when, uh, after it was retired and then retired again uh, by the uh, Air Force. Um, so, yeah, the, um, the R, NASA is still an aeronautics research agency as well. That's the first A in NASA, as we refer to it, you know, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Um, so we still do that. But, that's, but aeronautics gets much the smallest part of the budget. Uh, of any of the research um, groups here at NASA. And so they're always looking for inexpensive ways to do things. So, you know, when the Air Force or the Navy says, yeah, well, we have this test airplane and it does all this cool stuff, but we don't need it anymore. The you know, NASA guys are usually there with their hand up saying, hey, <laughs> we have some great ideas about things we can do with this. Um, well, and NASA was involved in flying the uh, the uh, former Soviet, now Russian, TU-144 uh, as well, weren't they, for some additional supersonic research? Um, yeah, in in the nine, after the the Soviet Union came apart in the nineties, we um, our aeronautics guys went over there and did a, a joint research program over there with uh, with them and the and the the Konkordsky, as it's sometimes called, or T one T one forty four. But uh, I was going to say um, that if you didn't, so so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, the guy, one of the guys who was on the Russian desk before me, um, that that program wrapped up before I showed up in two thousand and one, but. Uh, one of the guys who was there before me had left some uh, paperwork behind on that one, and, and we had some interesting discussions about uh, about that, um, mainly about you know how much um, um, vodka was consumed uh, in various side <laughs> meetings and things. But, but uh, it was it was an interesting and productive program, and I think we learned quite a bit out of it. And how one other project that you and I shared a laugh about was uh, there was a video circulating on the internet of maybe a year or two ago about uh, the uh, C-141 towing an F-106. Oh, right. And yeah. uh, there is, and I know you have a story about that, but uh, the, I, 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 the description on the video was uh, something about, you know, the feasibility of uh, towing a uh, high, you know, a, a high-speed uh, delta-winged aircraft, which I kind of took as a translation for... Well, we've got some uh, spare funding lying around. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could tow an F-106 with a C-141? It, it did have that uh, that kind of vibe to it. I think that was that was uh, Kelly Space and Technology was involved in that. I, I, Bill, I can't remember. I don't think NASA had any involvement in that, that project. Is that true, or am I misremembering? I, I, I think some of the stuff happened at um, well, what's now Armstrong Flight Research Center at their so there was some. I think there was some NASA involvement in, in that. Okay. But I think I think you're right. I think it was it was. There's a commercial group that was interested in, um, you know, basically towing a launch vehicle up to altitude and then dropping it off and, and having it launch into space. So you know, basically save themselves the first stage booster by by being towed up um, under the plane. Right. Kind of a yeah, it reminds me of flying my flying glider days there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you're, whatever you were. prospect. And and nobody. I think before or since has ever looked at the F-106 with that Delta wing and said, this is a good glider. It seems, but, uh, <laughs> no, but no. it's fascinating to see. And, and, you know, I don't think much came of the, the towed, uh, launch vehicle concept, but the, but the airplane worked, it flew and they were, you know, they were able to do it. That's, that's pretty fascinating stuff. 
Um, yeah, and, and we've we've got the research papers and stuff on it. So if anybody ever wants to, you know, take a look at that idea again, it's you know all that all that material is uh, available for them to look at. So, you know, you you mentioned that, and it it makes me stop for just a second and and and, and realize how staggering it is when you consider the. Uh, the, the sheer amount of, of research data and knowledge and information uh, that of which NASA is a steward and 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 not just the volume but the uh, but the significance and I, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a question here and it's more just an observation but that's got to be a pretty powerful thing when you go to work every day and and you realize you know your role in this uh, in this organization which is uh, which has led the way and and accomplished some of the most significant milestones in in human history. Not everybody gets to say that. Well, that that's true. I, but my uh, my ego gets taken down a notch every day too because I <laughs> I keep discovering things that I don't know anything about that I never heard of before. And it's like, oh, we did that. Um, so it, it's always interesting. I, we we have um, um, here at headquarters. We actually have the NACA's uh, research authorization collection. So. When the NACA, the bureaucratic way it did business was the committee would say, uh, okay, we're going to, we need to study, you know, compressibility of something or other, you know, on, on this kind of flight. And so they'd sign this thing called a research authorization and they were, you know, numbered sequentially from the beginning of 1915. Um, and, um, and, and then they'd, you know, they'd authorize the study and things would, you know, there'd be things that would break off that project, but each of those, you know, research authorizations um, um, led oftentimes into multi year you know, various kinds of studies. And we've got the, the um, sort of collected package of, of the research authorization paperwork and most of the other sort of paperwork that went with it in terms of, you know, what kind of programs are being studied under that research authorization. And, and, um, and uh, you know, it's fascinating. Some of the stuff is, you know, over 100 years old. And and you look at it and you find things like, I was, I was in there looking around and, and I was flipping through one of the files and a picture slipped out of one of the, the files behind that. And it was of um, of a blimp. I was like blimps. Sure enough, <laughs> sure enough. When um, you know when we had you know blimps, the Navy had some blimp crashes there. Um, uh, you know the NAC was tasked to figure out why that happened and how it happened. Um, and so um, you know there's this whole research authorization that, that dealt with um, you know blimp research and uh, you know they're, they're just it's just mind-boggling the, the number of things that that. Uh, you know, the researchers at the NACA and NASA have studied over the last, you know, century plus. That is incredible. Is, is there any sense for, uh, or any way to define the sort of volume or size of, 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 the, of the entire collection of, of what's, uh, what's in the archives? Oh, um, a, a couple of people have attempted to do that in the past, um, and um, I, we've been stumped on, on how, do you, how do you measure it. Um, there are certainly terabytes of most of the stuff has been digitized uh, now, so there's terabytes of data out there in various places and various locations. You know, technical papers are are, um, you know, are all available online at the National Technical Reports uh, Server, um, our NASA Technical Reports Server NTRS. Uh, so if you Google NTRS, um, that'll turn up, and you can research. Uh, you know, look at any of the research papers. Um, <laughs> we had a guy who. Uh, get called in by um, another government agency and was asked um, how this paper that he had done about aeronautics research uh, wound up um, being translated in, in Chinese and was being made available in China. 
Um, and he goes, well, he goes, I wrote that paper in the late 1940s, and it's available publicly in, on this on his website. So they, they probably just downloaded it and translated it. Uh, so, um, but the the you know the heritage of, of um, you know aeronautics and aerospace research that's out there is just um, uh, it's phenomenal, and uh, you know the the contributions of the folks that have gone you know before us are um, are just um, astounding to me, and and we really stand on the shoulders of, of some incredible giants back there who've done you know incredible research in the past. Well, you talk about the uh, the. Uh, the, the massive volume of the collection, uh, you know, not just the, uh, the, the the technical reports, of course, but but the physical collection of space history. Um, what role did the, uh, you, know, you know, well, space and aeronautics history, but specifically for space history, what role did the astronauts play um, in, uh, in preserving some of that uh, history, keeping artifacts, knowing what to keep, things like that? Ah, well, interestingly enough, um, in the very early days of NASA, um, the folks at the at, was the National Air Museum then now National Air and Space Museum um, they got together with with NASA. We actually signed an agreement with them that basically gave them first right of refusal on on anything that that NASA was done with. Um, and and NASA doesn't hang on to a lot of stuff. Uh, you know we're you know we're government agency. If we don't have a, a need for it, um, you know we usually you know get get rid of it and, and send it off. So if it's historically important, uh, we usually offer it to the Smithsonian. And then if, if they don't want or need it. Um, uh, you know, we'll offer it to some other museum, or and, and there's a sort of sequence of things that that happens. So, so, and so, excuse me, Bill, but how so, do how do Tom and I personally get on that list of you have a cool space <laughs> thing and nobody wants it, and and we would like to just like put it on, on our mantle? Um, well, on your mantle, maybe not, but um, <laughs> but certainly the EAA museum is is one of those places where you know they, you know, yeah. And, um, and thank you, you you're, know, Chris, you're, you're Chris, filling Chris in for Chris. Yeah, exactly. You're filling, yeah. stepping up for for our missing host. So anyway, yeah. But uh, but if Chris were here, I'd, I'd kind of a special deal. But uh, since he's not, uh, well, <laughs> oh man, um, give the poor guy a break. <laughs> he's he's mourning his car. <laughs> yeah, boy, that, that's a sad one. Um, but anyway, so um, in terms of artifacts, you know, NASA doesn't hang on to a lot of stuff. Um, there are there are a few things that we keep that that are you know of. Um, you know, continuing research use that we think might be of continuing use and um, uh, or things that are put out for display purposes, for heritage purposes. Uh, there's not a, actually, you'd be surprised how little of that there actually is. Uh, so most of it's over at the Air and Space Museum, which which uh, folks around here at NASA headquarters, it's about three blocks away. The, the Air and Space Museum on the mall is about three blocks from where I'm sitting right now here at NASA headquarters. And, um, and we kind of refer to it as our museum because when you walk in the door, most of the really cool stuff in there it's got NASA written all over it. So, uh, not, not that I'm dissing my, my friends in anywhere anywhere else, but uh, no, but, but a lot of the a lot of the, the milestone things there are are NASA things. So, <laughs> um, and and I love to take people over there who are like, new employees and um, and other folks. Uh, you know, whenever I have a chance, and, and we sort of walk through and, and we you know tell some of the stories. And I usually wind up with a crowd of people following behind. And then and then the museum docents come over and say, you know, Mr. Barry, you're not supposed to be doing this. You know, so, <laughs> Well, when you say that, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I I said that you know that's why they have docents over there, and the the people over the curators and stuff over there are great folks, and uh, and and we have a really good relationship with them. But uh, and that's why your picture is posted in key locations throughout the museum. Sort of watch out (laughs) for this guy. (laughs) Yeah, he'll be over here again someday. But actually, I'm I'm heading over there uh, right after we're done with this uh, this chat. Oh, excellent. we're going to be talking about uh, coordinating things for the um, 
the 50th anniversary of Apollo over the next year. So. Oh, very cool. Well, speaking of the 50th anniversary of Apollo and how you uh, guys don't hold on to too much stuff, I, I, I don't want to give you too much of a hard time, but I feel like we must do have to address at some point uh, that uh, you guys uh, taped over the moon landing. Yeah, well, yes and no, right? Uh, <laughs> Time to get the real story. I mean, I, I, yeah, well, I mean, you know, we can still see pictures of Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon, right? So we we have we have um, you know we have that on film uh, or tape, um, and now digitally, I guess. But uh, um, I think sometimes the story gets blown out of proportion. Certainly, government agencies are not perfect, and and you know we're all fallible, and, and we've certainly made you know, mistakes in the past, but. Um, on that particular one, I, I think people kind of give us a hard time. Um, that's not necessarily warranted because um, what happened was the 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 way the Earth was pointed at the time toward the moon, um, the the facility that was um, um, collecting the, the data from Apollo 11 when they were on, you know, getting ready to walk on the moon was in Australia. We have three sites: one in Spain, one in Australia, one in, in California. Um, the deep space network and, and those things, these big antennas to collect uh, data. And so it just so, so happened that the one in Australia was the one pointing there when, when Neil and Buzz you know, walked on the moon. And um, they recorded um, they had the data coming down. It was in a weird format that wasn't usual. And of course, the Australian TV format and there's US TV format. Anyway, they, they, they basically put a camera in front of um, their TV screen there and recorded that and sent that data over to the US. And so we recorded that here as well. Um, the tapes in Australia um, got taped over. Um, you know, we've done a people before me have done a very detailed analysis of what happened, and um, and their 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 conclusion was that uh, those tapes were taped over. Well, uh, I, I don't know about you guys. When I was in high school back in the 70s, uh, so I'm you know, revealing my age here, but. And when I was in high school back in the 70s, I, I actually worked with a closed circuit TV studio in, in high school I went to. And I worked in a TV studio, and we never saved tape for anything. We taped over everything because tape was so expensive. And I think that's probably exactly what happened, you know, in Australia. The guys got there and said, well, NASA's already got this stuff anyway. You know, these may be the first tapes that were made of the thing. Um, and, and But, you know, you know there's, a, there's a record copy somewhere else anyway, so we'll just tape over them. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, they taped over it. Was it a really big deal? It would be nice to have those tapes because with the technology we have these days, we might be able to get you know some better resolution out of them. Um, but um, we've actually applied that technology to the tapes that we do have and and, and cleaned up the the video of uh, you know Buzz walking on the moon. So it's it's better. It could you know it would have been nice to have them, but but yeah, I think that's kind of one of those tempest in the teapot sort of things. <laughs> Well, and so much of uh, of what has been released visually, especially, you know, you, you talked about uh, uh, kids sending letters, and now there's so much so much online content over the last 20 years or so you can point to. But the, the amount of, of quality images and, and video and things that NASA as a whole uh, releases and makes available is, uh, is, is staggering. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those areas where, you, you know, I can point to it and say, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there's my tax dollars at work and I, uh, and I don't blanch for a second. Yeah, this, this some really, for the Apollo anniversaries coming up, there's some really great stuff going on too. There's, there's things that are happening that, that, you know, we're applying, or other people actually, largely people outside NASA who are enthusiastic about this are applying new stuff to, you know, old data and cleaning it up and, and pointing things out. Um, there's the National Archives, 
NASA Archives legally gets all the government records, including NASA's records, right? So um, uh, a lot of what we have here are copies of, of things, um, and the National Archives holds the, the original records sure. of things. Um, so the National Archives film folks um, had a bunch of, you know, had a bunch of film. There's, there's still some film that NASA has that we've hung on to that, uh, um, you know, we have the originals of. Um, but um, the National Archives has a very big collection, and they were approached by um, some folks who were making a movie about Apollo 11 for next year, uh, um, basically a documentary. Uh, and they cut a deal with those guys. The, the documentary makers agreed to digitize in like 8K format um, all this film so they could then you know, take the best of it and make, make this film out of it. Uh, and then they'll, they'll deposit that stuff back with the National Archives because the National Archives doesn't have the money to digitize ticket things. Some of that film was like 70 millimeter film, oh, wow. uh, you know, movie film. And, and it's, it's, I've, I've gotten to see, see some of the, the uh, digitized materials already. Uh, it, it is amazing. Uh, the detail of, of um, stuff you'll see. So, so you know, there'll be there'll be that documentary coming out, but there are a lot of other things that are coming out like that. Um, just a few weeks ago, um, you know, we had, you know, Mission Control. Um, they have all those guys working there, and they they all had these communication loops that are like 60 channels of communications that were going on in Mission Control on each right. Apollo mission, right? And they taped all that stuff. So there are these you know, you know, pairs of 30 track tapes. Um, and that stuff had, had sit in the archive for a long time. Somebody came up with the money to digitize that as part of a study of, um, you know, how people communicate in high-stress environments or in some of the things. And, um, I forget which university in Texas it is that's doing this. But um, but they, they came up with the money to do that. NASA loaned them the tapes uh, and, the, and the machine, <laughs> a, a, a tape player that, that could play it back um, and, uh, and some expertise on how to, how to make that work. Um, and now we've got now uh, publicly available um, all the backroom discussions that were going on. So like, for example, on, um, you know, on, on Apollo 11, when the 1202 alarm goes off as they're trying to land and, 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 you want, and, and you, we've all heard the, the front room version of that about, um, yeah, you're going at alarm and, 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 you know, hearing um, Charlie Duke, who was the Capcom that day, um, you know, telling, re- referring that to the crew. But you can also now listen to the conversation between, you know, the guys in the back room who were saying, yeah, that's this thing, and it means this. Um, uh, you can also hear tapes whenever the, they were voice activated when they were on loops. So when guys would call home, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm heading home, and do I need to pick up anything? And yeah, you need to get a quart of milk and stuff like that. <laughs> so, you, so you also get some sort of cultural background yeah. stuff as well, because those were those tapes were voice activated, and, and, and you get bits and pieces in there. But all that stuff that's is now cool. available um, in, um, you know, in all of its glory there. It's kind of messy because there's so much of it. It's like sure. 19,000 hours of audio. Oh my uh, gosh. But what a but, what an um, absolute goldmine for for an historian. That's just, and, and especially yeah, even, yeah. The, as you said, the, the casual cultural stuff. And, and I don't imagine you have somebody saying, you know, I, I got to remember to go to the store and get a, a quart of milk, which costs 37 cents because it's 1969. But, <laughs> but still, yeah. you get a bit of that... Uh, you know, a bit of that that cultural example. Um, you know, very quickly, we're we're getting uh, we're getting toward the end here. But uh, you mentioned earlier on, you mentioned the right stuff. And one thing I wanted to ask is, uh, you know, Bill, I'm a, a big movie buff, as is you know Tom, and as is Chris. Um, is there uh, is there a movie out there that uh, the and I'm speaking fictionally, is there a movie out there that gets it right? Is it, you know, you mentioned right stuff. We've got October Sky, more recently Hidden Figures that you and I introduced. Uh, um, is, is there one that stands out to you and say, boy, this one, this one, they, uh, they really did just about the best. 
Yeah, well, uh, we've been lucky lately. There have been so many um, uh, good space movies that have come out lately. Um, and some kind of entertaining, but not necessarily very good you know, in terms of technical side things, movies that come out. Um, you know, The Martian was, um, you know, uh, largely thanks to Andy Weir and, and the great book he wrote, uh, was, was, you know, well done, I thought. Um, Hidden Figures is, is good. They, you know, within the bounds of telling a good story, they, they, they were very devoted to try and get the details as accurate as they could. And, um, and NASA did, you know, we did our best to help them do that. Um, and um, uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of, you know, movies that capture the, the feel of it. Uh, like I said, Right Stuff is really sort of captures the feel of it. Um, it tells the story from a very particular point of view that's, I think, not necessarily fair in, in, in all cases. Like, for example, it makes Gus Grissom look like um, not a very nice guy, and, and I think it misportrays him quite a bit. Uh, and there's some other people like that, that you know, the astronauts that get, get mis, misportrayed in that movie. But, but it, it really, in terms of what the feel was at the time, I think it kind of captures that. Um, but I, I think if you ask most people at, at NASA, um, you know, if they're, you know, what they think the most accurate you know, historical space movie has been. It's probably going to be Apollo 13. You know, Tom Howard, or Tom Hanks, or Tom Hanks and Ron Howard production there in uh, back in the 90s. Uh, they they really um, they really put a big effort. In fact, we actually have a little plaque hanging in the, in the uh, history office here at headquarters. Um, you know, a thank you plaque from the, the production team there uh, because they actually came here and did a bunch of research here to make sure they got things as accurate as they as they could. Uh, that's. That's reassuring because, uh, you know, as a, as a, a person with a with a, a strong layman's interest in these things, you come out of a movie like Apollo thirteen or you know what I consider kind of that companion series that from the Earth to the Moon that Tom Hanks is involved with HBO. Oh, uh, that was that was good too. And you come out of those things, and and I hate to say it like this, but you feel like. Uh, these are accurate just because of there's an obvious attention to detail and and you know I don't have the expertise to say where the details are right or wrong but there's a there's a sense that these were labors of love and it's it's reassuring to hear that that uh, that, that generally holds true yeah I, I, I think so um, you know there are of course there's there's sort of a, a tacit competition at, at uh, particularly at NASA among, and amongst space geeks I suspect in general <laughs> Of you know, okay, where were the mistakes in Apollo 13? Or where were the mistakes in an X movie? And oh, did you notice this? Right. Um, and they got wrong, but um, uh, but generally they do. I, I, but any you know, any movie is is you know, it's going to be a movie. It's not going to be you know, a literal. It, you know, if it, it wouldn't be a movie if it was a documentary, right? Exactly. Um, so it, it's it's a different thing, and 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 there's going to be some you know aspects of it that are going to have to be. You're, you know, adjusted because of the time you have to tell a story or, or because there are just too many characters that uh, keep the audience uh, focused on it or for whatever reason. Um, so always, there's always a trade-off. Um, uh, but, um, I, you know, I really appreciate it, particularly when, when you've got uh, you know, a production team that's really keen on getting the, the story straight, like they did on Hidden Figures, like they did on, um, on Apollo 13. And um, I, I think uh, we'll see coming up soon uh, on First Man, the, the Bio, you know, the biographical movie about Neil Armstrong is coming out this fall. Um, those folks have, um, you know, made a great effort as well to, to try and get the story as straight as they can. Yeah, we're really looking forward to to, uh, to First Man, definitely. Um, and uh, and yeah, like uh, Hidden Figures, for example, uh, tells you know they had to compress the timeline quite a bit because you know you're trying to tell decades of history in an hour and a half. Um, 
I, I know that my uh, girlfriend was sitting next to me while in while we were in the theater while I was getting apoplectic over a, a C5 model, uh, you know, being portrayed <laughs> in one of the offices. Like, that plane hadn't even been designed yet. Anyway. I, I was sitting behind Tom and equally apoplectic, but, uh, you know. You <laughs> yeah, know uh, there, there, there's... There, uh, Ted Melfi, the director and, and co-writer of the, the movie there, and he and I spent a lot of time on the phone talking about things. And, and, uh, and it, it, it's, it, he, he had some amazing insights on things. And, and, uh, and there were some other things in there that I, that, you know, didn't like him. And we agreed to disagree on a few things uh, on one of them, in particular, the, the scene where um, Mary Jackson is, is walking, you know, to work in, in, the, in a wind tunnel and gets her heel caught in, in, in the grating in the floor. And, and uh, and I, I, I told Ted, I said, Ted, this is really horrible. You know, you know anybody who knows anything about wind tunnels is going to know that, um, you know, you don't walk through a wind tunnel to get to work, right? <laughs> it's, just, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a hallway, right? And anybody who's working that kind of job is not going to be wearing high heels. Um, and, and even if they did and they got their foot stuck, uh, there would be, you know, safety interlocks that would allow them to turn the wind tunnel off instantaneously. So it wasn't like she's going to be, you know, killed by, you know, the, the wind tunnel. Um, and he very... He, very politely listened to me complain about it for a while. And then he said, Bill, he goes, so how many people you are, how many people do you think there are in this, this country who know anything about wind tunnels? <laughs> and I said, okay, not too many. He goes, he said, well, he said, you know, probably not many. And he says, I'll take, I'll take those guys as losses. Um, but uh, I, I think the scene's really good. And I think people really like it um, because it, 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 it does something for the movie. And I said, okay, well, you're the movie maker. You know, that's, that's your call. Uh, and of course, it turns out he was right because I keep running into people who go, you know, go, yeah, well, one of my favorite scenes in the movie was that scene where Mary Jackson gets her heel cut. And it's like, I said, you know, that is completely fake. And they go, yeah, yeah, but it was really cool. And I was like, so Ted, Ted was right. Yeah, that was a great scene. Well, it's, uh, it shows a lot of humility on your part to uh, to acknowledge that. I would still be sitting there folding my arms and say, "Yeah, it was still fake." <laughs> but uh, but well, as I do we have said, my arms folded. Oh, good, excellent. <laughs> That's that makes me feel a lot better. Um, and you know, certainly enjoyed uh, enjoyed Hidden Figures. And uh, um, as you said, when when you make sacrifices to tell a good story, if it's if it's an important story that's worth telling, I can I can certainly get behind that. So yeah. That- the the thing I, the like like uh, like Tom said the, the thing on hidden figures was the time compression and and the to me one of the sort of drawbacks of, of the movie is that um, much as I love it um, is that it makes it look like um, that there's a lot of racism at NASA in, in the early 60s um, and that it suddenly changed and in reality that change you know really started took place from 1943 until well till today still sure um, you know, there's, there's still stuff going on so. Um, you know, it, it, it was a much longer tell story, but, but they couldn't tell a story that spread out over that many years and, and make it a good story. So they kind of compressed it all. Um, so they did a little injustice on, on that side of things, but, but I think they, they got, they kind of got the spirit of things that happened because in fact, um, people at NASA, it's, you know, it's an engineering organization and, you know, people really kind of don't care what you look like or what kind of clothes you wear, or whether you're wearing your green dot tie or not uh, today. Um, <laughs> What they care about is, you know, can you do the job and do you know what you're talking about? Um, and uh, and can, can you get the data and prove it? Um, and, and that's the bottom line. And, um, 
you know, all that other stuff just falls by the wayside. Absolutely. Well, speaking of time compression, we are right up against the clock here on this end. And I know you've got, uh, you've got a life to get back to, Bill. So um, many, many thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join us. And uh, I, I have a strong suspicion this won't be the last time. I hope you'll come back and join us again as uh, it's uh, – the times you and I get to talk are, are few and far between, unfortunately, but it's uh, but it's always a pleasure, and we really appreciate it. Well, it's always a pleasure for me, too, Hal, and, um, and I'd be happy to rejoin you again. I'm, I'm trying to catch up with that guy, Pelton, who keeps showing up on your show. <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, and now we're going to have to make him a green dot tie to go with his five-episode blazer once that uh, <laughs> finally gets uh, finally gets awarded. But I'm going to tell him you're after him, and we'll see... Uh, We'll see what that uh, what that spurs. So well, competition never hurts. Never hurts anybody. In the meantime, if you're out there and you're you're especially missing uh, Chris Henry's voice, uh, I, I, we'll uh, we'll do him a solid and mention you can uh, head over to Apollo13Minute.com and listen to him and some astronauts and future guests at some point, Bill Barry. Um, I've been a guest. Right. I'm sure Tom will join up uh, join up over there at some point. Um, going in depth into the Apollo 13 movie, they're having a ton of fun with that. Um, it's a it's a, just a total hobby uh, project for him, labor of love, non commercial. So I don't feel too bad about plugging it, especially since Chris is at home crying about his car right now. The poor guy. So anyway, Bill, thank you uh, once again. Thanks to uh, to Ty for keeping us all together and for doing the editing. That's going to make this uh, make my part of this sound coherent in a few days. And thanks to everybody who's writing in with your feedback, your comments, your ratings, your reviews, uh, that all that stuff means the world to us. So please keep that good feedback coming. And with that, we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>